when we originally went to the moon, our total focus was on the moon. We weren't thinking about looking back at the earth. But now that we've done it, that may very well have been the most important reason that we went. And this was a reality for not just the astronauts on the, um, that actually landed on the moon, but for Americans and people around the world in their living rooms, watching their televisions, as they started to realize that the camera that they were watching was turning from the moon and recording the earth that they were sitting on. And they realized, in a moment, we're much smaller, much less significant than we really have thought we are. It was a life-changing moment. It was sobering. It was compelling. And tonight, my hope is to replicate that for us in a sense about God's grace. God's grace that we just sing about. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let your grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of my sin. We sing about his grace. We appeal to his grace routinely as that we need it for one another. And that I would wager that many of us, myself included, have read passages like when God responds to Paul, when he's appealing to the Lord to take this thorn away from him, and God says, my grace is sufficient for you. There's a sense in which I understand kind of what's being said. But I've also walked away from that passage many times feeling kind of like that's a jip. I got shortchanged. What, how is this supposed to be sufficient? And then I read about that his power is made perfect in weakness. And I'm like, give me the power, God, but your grace, I need something more. And so let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 where we're going to read and really see what it's meant that God saves us by grace through faith. So if you would start reading with me in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the disobedient, We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Jesus Christ for you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourself it is God's gift not from works so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before time for us to do. Grace. Now, what is grace? If you learn the same little adage that I did, grace is when you get something that you don't deserve. It's different from mercy, where you don't get what you do deserve. Grace, however, is what this passage really focuses on. 
And verse 5 culminates with the statement, you are saved by grace. Grace is a word that comes extremely loaded to Paul and his listeners at that time. It's this idea called patronage. See, in the culture of Paul's time, patronage was a way that a person could rise above their current status and gain access to things that they lacked. So say that you were a blacksmith that had just returned from fighting in a war, but you have aspirations to start your own blacksmithing forge. There's no credit system where you're assigned a score that will convince someone to loan you money. No, but there is patronage. You would find a friend who knew someone, a very wealthy someone, who had resources that you needed. And your friend would go to their contact and would vouch for you based on their relationship with that patron. And that very wealthy person, if he decided to have grace on you, would give you access to his resources. And this grace was intentionally benevolent. In fact, it was considered a virtue for the person to give grace without any intention of having a return on it. To give it regardless of whether or not the person qualified. It was considered a vice for a person to give access to these people seeking his grace based on their qualifications, expecting a return. See, Aristotle, in his book, Rhetoric, tells us that grace may be defined as helpfulness towards someone in need, not in return for anything, nor for the advantage of the helper himself, but for that of the person helped. Sure, patrons had to use discretion because they had a limited amount of resources, but true grace, honorable grace, the type of virtuous grace that was exalted in the day that Paul wrote these letters was a grace that gave without the expectation of repayment. It was someone who, if someone who received grace, which was called a client, actually did repay the patron in any amount, it was considered profit, not a repayment. And this is exactly what Paul is pointing us to in the second chapter of Ephesians. In fact, verse 1 begins by settling what type of clients we are. You were dead. Here's your resume to God. Dead. You, first off, have no way of finding someone to go to a patron and plead your case, but even if they did, they could list off your achievements, they could talk about all that you've done in your life, and then when they got to the end, would say, he is dead. No patron helps a dead person. Not only were you dead, in verse 1 it continues that you were infected with a vile and disgusting disease, dead in your trespasses and sins. We were plague-infected corpses of an enemy combatants that were trying to siege God's compound. We fought against the very patron that we needed to receive grace from. We were not neutral. We, were, we are notorious blind, notoriously blind when it comes to our own sin. The reality is that so many of us will listen to us being described as sinners and as enemies of God, and yet we are so numb to what that meant. 
We affirm the truth intellectually, but we move on quickly. But think about your enemies. Think about the mother who constantly criticized you and your looks and that you still loathe when you're putting on your makeup and dealing with the insecurity that you still suffer from. Think about the best friend who convinced your girlfriend to leave you and and date him instead. Think about your roommate who never picks up after herself and has no regard for personal space, no matter how many times you tell her. Think about the lady who cuts you off on the road. Think about the friend who you are in an argument with right now and you don't want to see. Think about the person who has hurt you the worst and that you have yet to stop hurting from. Think about those people and what is your response to them? If you were the almighty of the universe, what would you do? Or what would you withhold from them? Would you be content to banish them from your mind forever and never think of them again? Would you be happy if you could snap your fingers and they just ceased to exist and were wiped from everyone's memory? Or would you be vindictive? Would you treat them differently than the way that God's treated us in the songs we just sang about? Your enemies. We may not be hateful, but we are so quick to withhold good things from those we are at odds with, and we are often so petty. We ride our rockets of pride higher and higher and higher. We build our towers of Babel higher and higher and higher. And then when we finally get to see it from God's perspective, he has to look down on our achievements. Why is it that we're so quick to be so divided and divisive within the church. I think it's because we've lost this overarching view of how God truly sees us. We've lost this view, or we have forgotten, or we have never seen to begin with, that the difference between the godliest saint and the most vile sinner has nothing to do with either of them. Which is why Paul says in verse 3, we too all previously lived among them and were by nature children of wrath as others were also. For us believers in this room, if you are struggling with being united to other believers in this room, whether because you wronged someone or they wronged you, you've lost this view. You've lost this overarching view of seeing our small lives from a God's perspective. You have forgotten that moment when God turned the camera back on you as you sat in your previous lifestyle and you were struck by what you saw on the screen. And you were, are you too proud to acknowledge your sinfulness to your friend? To go to them and ask for mercy and grace and forgiveness? Know that they received the same grace that you received. Know that you can go to them and that they were received by Christ in the same way you were received by Christ. And that's now how Christ calls us to receive one another. With the expectation that we are going to come as broken and as imperfect beings who hurt one another. But find unity, find forgiveness, find grace in being benevolent and kind to those who are unworthy. It's the same forgiveness that we need. And to you who have been wronged, or to you who have seen someone who is struggling with a sin, 
Do your friends know that you were a sinner saved by grace? Do they know that if they came to you and confessed their sins to you, that you would respond to them with the same grace you claim for yourself from Christ? Because in response to our filthy, sin-filled lives, where we refuse to follow and love God, He saved us by grace. It wasn't merited or earned by you. He responded to our sins with kindness. And as Psalm 103 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserved or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He did not save you because he needed something that you brought to the table. He saved you purely because he is a kind God who loved you. He saved you by grace. His character was the defining feature that determined whether or not you would be saved. God looked out on the field of battle and decided to save you for your sake. And Christians, it is not something you remember about your faith and then move on from. It's not a starting point that we come to and then get to be proud in our continuing walk with Christ. It all starts when we are honest about ourselves and about our condition. And when God shines the light on us, and for the first time, we realize just how helpless we are. And this condition is shared by all of humanity. For those of you who are here and are not Christians, this is not the religion for the proud. It is the religion of the humiliated. It's the religion of those who thought that they were so put together but realized that they needed another to intervene in their life. They needed a patron to reach down into their lives and to have mercy on them and give them grace. Just like every single Christian in this room, you have nothing to bring to God. You have limited knowledge. He's the source of all knowledge who wrote the laws that scientists observe. You are blown around in this world that's polluted by our sin. He's the God who holds the storms in his hands. You are an enemy. He is a benevolent and kind Savior. Which is why verse 4 makes an abrupt shift and points us to our common hope. Regardless of your background, of the sin that has marred you and tainted your life, of the accolades that impress those around you, whatever. Our hope is in God's intervention. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
God who delights in the salvation of his wicked enemies, who loves his most heinous enemies, who does not withhold kindness for petty reasons, who acts for the benefit of the needy, not because he needs anything from them. That God stepped into history, was rejected by us, and died for us to save us from the wrath that we deserve. Would you be willing to offer your friendship to the person who has sinned against you the worst in your life? Let alone to send someone you love the most to endure 33 years of watching, of being subjected to rejection and humiliation, to his life ending by being arrested, mocked, and having his beard ripped out and being spat on. And then being crucified on a cross like a criminal for no crime of his own. All that so the person that you won't even speak to will have eternal, unending bliss in your presence. So that they would escape the punishment that was owed to them. And all you had to do was treat your most loved son like he was that wicked enemy. Is it any wonder that the world thinks the gospel is a joke when Christians claim this type of love for themselves and refuse to offer it to their neighbor? This is the grace of God. This is Jesus Christ. This is our God full of grace and mercy. As Romans 8.31 starts, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also in him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? The implication is no one, for God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? The answer, no one. Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. And he also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword? No. Nothing separates us from the love of the one who had to endure our punishment. From the love of the one that we crucified because of our sins. Oh, love of loves. There's no greater grace that has ever been given to a more needy client. That he would look on us and be moved to such great lengths that Christ leaves his throne, descends to our cross, and rises back to the Father to advocate on our behalf. To expel anyone who would accuse us in the heavenly courts. And that God then treats us as his own children. We are saved by grace through faith. Look at verse 8. For you were saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Notice that Paul moves from being recipients of God's grace to the works that God has prepared for us with no hesitation. 
He firmly states that we are not saved by our works and then immediately moves to works flows from receiving grace. And again, this idea of a patron and client relationships helps us see why this move is so sudden. When a patron gave a client a gift, it was expected that any virtuous person would then reciprocate something out of a grateful heart. It was not coerced, and often patrons took losses because their clients' business ideas or ventures would fail. But receiving the gift was so unwarranted, so undeserved, that a person who had any sense of virtue knew that they ought to give back to their patron what they could, which often was honor and praise. They spoke about the gift that they had been given to those that they were around. They proclaimed the greatness of their patron who had loved them and given them this gift of grace when they didn't have anything to offer. And it was this generous, this grateful attitude that would motivate the clients to get up and go to the patron's house early every morning. Clients would be waiting in the foyer of their house so that when the patron got up and came down, the clients were ready to say, whatever you need me to do, I'm here to do it. I present myself to you. They placed their faith in this patron. Faith was a word that was used to describe this loyalty that a client had for their patron. That because of this gracious gift, they responded with loyalty. They advocated for his honor and his praise. David De Silva, a New Testament scholar, talks about this topic. One of the most important contributions an awareness of the ethos of grace in the first century can make is implanting in our minds the, necess- the necessary connection between receiving and responding, between favor and gratitude in its fullest sense, because we think about the grace of God through the lens of a 16th century um, Protestant polemics against earning salvation through means of pious works. We have a difficult time hearing the New Testament's own affirmations of the simple yet noble and beautiful circle of grace. One favor that has been shown, once favor has been shown and gifts conferred, however, the result must invariably be that the recipient will show gratitude and answer grace with grace. This was expected of normal people who had received grace from normal people. They did not stop to question if their works afterwards merited the grace to begin with because they operated from the assumption that the patron was truly benevolent truly good, and was truly giving this out of a gracious heart, not because of what he expected in return. They assumed the best of human patrons. How much more should we assume that if we are now walking in obedience, it is out of response to the gracious character of God, not us trying to make him gracious towards us? Any coercion, Any heavy burden being placed on you about obedience is not from God. And not only can we trust in the gracious character of our God, who gives with no ill intent, but we can also have confidence in the effective power of the gift. 
unlike men who cannot give enough to change a man's heart, God's very gift is the very thing that will produce the virtual result. He gives us life. As verse 5 says, He made us alive in Christ. You receive as much credit for your new life as a newborn baby who is born healthy does for theirs. And what does a baby that is born do? It lives. It cries. It breathes because of the life that it has been given. The very gift of life. It is a new heart of flesh like Ezekiel 36 promised. It is the Spirit of God who acts as a well of life springing up in believers. About this issue, Jonathan Edwards said, The Spirit of God is given to true saints to dwell in them as His proper lasting abode. And He is represented as being there so united to the faculties of the soul that He becomes there a principle or spring of new nature and life. The light of the Son of Righteousness doesn't only shine upon them, but is so communicated to them that they shine also and become little images of the sun which shines upon them. So when Paul affirms that we are not saved by a grace that then has the optional attachment of works being lived out. Dallas Willard, in his book on discipleship, says grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. Earning. It's a mentality that you have about the reason why you're doing the works. Effort. The actual works. The things that you are putting in to walk in obedience to God. It's not contrary to grace. It's the result of it. Now, as for the discussion of sanctification and the interplay of being saved and doing good works, yet also struggling with sin, you're just going to have to wait till next week. But here's the main issue. There's no such thing as a non-spirit-led child of God. It doesn't exist. Romans 8, starting in verse 12, says, So then, my brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those who are led by God's spirits are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. We are not obligated to live according to the flesh, but we are to the Spirit. He leads us since we are sons of God with the Spirit of God singing the melody and our spirits joins in as a harmony with Him to testify together through the Spirit-empowered lives that we are living that we are now sons of God. 
disgrace compels us from a new heart that ever increasingly hates the things of this world to continually live lives of faith in God. And yes, I know that you have questions about how this relates to the struggle of faith and sins. We will get there next week, but we need to ruminate on this grace given to us by God first. It's the principal thing, the primary matter. And if we do not define it well, if we stop at grace merely being God forgiving our sins, we will also fail to see the provision that God has provided us, which enables us to then do the work of sanctification. Because his grace doesn't just stop at forgiving us. It changes us. It makes us new and empowers believers with the Spirit of God. So first, Christian, you received the Spirit of power the moment you believed. Everything you need for walking in greater and greater holiness has already been given to you. Do you lack wisdom? Ask the Spirit who knows the very mind of God to reveal wisdom to you and to open your minds as you search the Scriptures to see His truth. Do you lack zeal? Then pray that the Spirit would cause your heart to burn for the things that God's heart burns for. Do you have a lack of the Spirit's feeling filling in areas of your life, then confess the sins that are plaguing you and have faith in God's gift of grace in the Spirit to purify you and cleanse you from unrighteousness. And to all of you, know that this wonderful, beautiful, kind, and benevolent Savior demands a response from you. What will you do with His grace? He holds it out. Will you come in here, sit up under God's word, benefit from the communion of the saints, experience those who are having the life-giving power of God transform their lives? Will you watch others submit to God and be forgiven and made new? And then look at God and say, I'll pass. Do you think that you're able to walk out of here just like you came in? Please don't. This message is the only hope being offered to you that will last for an eternity. There's no other message that saves sinners. This is the message of grace for undeserving sinners loved by a gracious God. You may flirt with God in here and brush elbows with Him as His Spirit lives in those people around you who are following Him. And then graduate from college and go on and live a long and full life. Yet one day you will stand before him and see him in his full splendor, in his full beauty. And when he pronounces your condemnation for rejecting this message, you will wholeheartedly agree with him. He created you in your mother's womb. He gives you life. He designed your personality and the giftings and the family you would be born into. He placed the influences in your life, the people who mean so much to you, the resources in your life so that you would be able to come to college and come here tonight and hear this message. There is not a single thing in your life that did not come from him. Then after you received all of those things, those graces of God who loves you, you hated your brothers and sisters your friends, your family, your co-workers, you lied, you cheated, you lived from a heart that is primarily concerned with self-love. 
You became a part of the broken world that refuses to honor God. Just another cog in this sinister game of life. Yet even now, as you hear God's loving grace, you doubt it. You try to excuse it away. You've heard the warnings from God's word about certain lifestyles and how destructive you are. That you excuse away your indulgence in them. You love the choice, and maybe you only fear the consequences of being found out. Know that there's one who sees all. He sees that, that no one else does. Who is at this very moment pleading for you to receive his grace. If you will only come to him and receive it. Yes, his grace will change you. You do not have to cleanse yourself first. You do not have to stop your lifestyle first. You have to receive grace first. His grace. But no, if you have no intention of receiving his transforming grace, if you are in here and are presuming upon God's grace, thinking that it's only a grace of forgiveness, And that you are good with God now so you can give yourself license to keep on sinning. Know that you will not receive grace. But you are heaping judgment on yourself. In fact, if you want forgiveness, if you want the resources, if you want God's grace but still plan on dining with his enemy and living according to the flesh, there's no more dangerous place than this room for you to be in. Romans 2, starting at verse 4, says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. God's beautiful kindness and grace is not permission for you to indulge your sin. It is his patience so that you may come and be cleansed. It is God crediting your debt to an account that either will be paid on the shoulders of Jesus Christ or by you when you meet him. Listen to Hebrews 4, or 6, starting in verse 4. It is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age. That's those who have come into the church and experienced this new life that is infecting the lives of believers. Seen it firsthand. Experienced it. Listened to the sound doctrine being taught from God's word. Seen the Spirit answering prayers and changing people's lives. And who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to content. For the grounds that drinks the rain that often falls on it and produces vegetation useful for those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. I would not be faithful in proclaiming the grace of God to you guys if I did not also warn you that to have this beautiful grace splayed out like a buffet before you 
for you to come and feast and be welcomed and for you to come and listen to it and then walk away and make light of it. I would not be faithful if I didn't warn you and tell you that you are storing up wrath for yourself because of that. Worse than receiving all the other provisions in your life and failing to recognize God is to hear the work of His Son, to live in the community created by it, to see the Spirit at work around you, to benefit from the presence of God and being in close proximity to it at work and His Word, and then to count it all as worthless and walk away. And believers, when you struggle with sin and feel racked with guilt, what are you feeling guilty about? Do you hate your sin and do the things that you don't want? Does sin, even sin which no one will ever find out about, cause you to grieve? Find some comfort in that your heart is now beating. Your heart of stone is beginning to pump blood of life through you again. Your heart, which once delighted in the things that were against God, is now bearing witness to you and to others that the true Spirit of God is bringing life where there was once none. That through repentance you are being a testimony to God's faithfulness to His children. However, if you profess the name of Christ, and yet still find joy in sins that you know are against Him, and have no intention of turning from them, the only hope and comfort I can give you is in repentance for your rebellion. Come to the Father and receive His grace, which will sanctify your heart. Yet I can assure you of this, it's not too late. Some of you may be hearing this harsh and strong language that I'm using right now, and you're beginning to write me off and write this message off. You're offended It's bothered you, and you're hoping that you can just leave and forget this lesson of so-called grace. Yet even when you're thinking that, God is ready to offer you more grace. He offers to you his extension of grace. He still loves you. He will still forgive you of your sins, past, present, and future. The fact is, is that until your last breath passes from your body, God stands ready, beckoning you to come and to receive his grace. Because just as we said from the beginning, salvation from God is based on his character, not in what you have done. You can spend a lifetime in rebellion against him. And he is still a gracious God that extends grace. We all come to Jesus broken, sinful, and wicked. It is the unifying fact of the church. Like the camera panning around to show us just how insignificant our lives and our planets are, God's grace shows us that we are all the same before Him. But those who come to Him do not stay the way that they came. They remain with Him as holy, as healed, as adopted. They go out as ministers of grace themselves. So offer the same grace to others that you receive. Kill the pride that makes you forget 
that you have received everything good about you from God. And remind yourself of the immeasurable riches of His grace that He has lavished upon you. Do you want to fight and kill sin? Remember that it comes from His gracious gift of the Spirit that is working in you. Do you worry about whether or not you are saved because of how grievous your sins are? Run to God and entrust yourself to Him whose grace is greater than all of our sins. Hide nothing from Him and receive His grace. Don't think that you need to present yourself to doll yourself up and put makeup on and adorn yourself and put your best clothes on and come to Him. He already sees you as you are and is so ready to give grace. It is not offered to you if you only feel so bad. If you only go so long without sinning again. Or if you only do enough good to counterbalance the scales. He saves you because He is good. Because He is kind. Because He is loving. He considers your sins and your actions with the same weight as Mother Teresa. Both of you need His grace. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. It's grace. You are saved by grace through faith. Father, I pray for everyone who is sitting here right now. Father, if they have not come to you and received your grace, there is no more freeing thing in this world. We lie and we fool ourselves into thinking that our sins and the things that we indulge ourselves in will bring us life. But Father, they ensnare us and they slave us and they kill us. Father, you are so quick and so ready to rush to those who have no merit of their own and to love them because you are good, because you are kind, because you are gracious. Thank you so much for your son, the most visible display of your grace. And in his name I pray, amen.